Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. My name is Richard Diaz, and I'll be your host. What I hope to do is introduce you to some amazing athletes, luminaries from the sports science community, and as come to be expected, I'll also provide some highly opinionated rants on all aspects of endurance sport and my current favorite, obstacle course racing. So sit tight, grab a cup of coffee, and let's do this. I am pleased to say that at long last, I have my dear friend, Matt Fitzgerald, on the show with us once again. He's releasing a new book, this book entitled The Endurance Diet. Discover the five core habits of the world's greatest athletes to look, feel, and perform better. Matt Fitzgerald is a book machine when it comes to endurance sport. I respect and love the work he does, and I'm very pleased to have him back on the show. Matt, say hello to my people. Hello, people. <laughs> so, Matt, uh, I know last time we spoke, and it's been a while, hasn't it? What's it? This must have been about half a year. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a gap, and uh, it was tough to get through, but um, here I am. Yeah, well, point being is that I know that last time we spoke, you were in the midst of developing this book, and you had just come back from some travel. Uh, I believe you had gone over to Kenya for a bit and yep. done some work there. And man, what a life you're living! Yeah, well, that's uh, that's the beauty of my job, which isn't really a job. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just I just make up things I want to do and find excuses to write about them, and I I guess that is my job. So yeah, it makes for a pretty good life. Yeah. Well, what I love about this book is that I guess the the term, and it's used a lot, I'm going to use it again, it's evidence-based, right? Correct. So what you've done is you've gone out and you've done the research, you did the due diligence, looked into the lives and performances of some of the greatest athletes on the planet, and drew the commonality in the way they feed to play to share with our athletic audience to get them to understand what they should or should not be doing where their nutrition is concerned. Yep. Is that pretty well encapsulated? That's it in a nutshell. <laughs> well, and so what I love about this is that I I have clients I, I coach. I have people that I work with that are serious. I guess, for lack of a better term. They're very serious about their approach to the sports they're involved in. And they want to earn a living. They are willing to do just about anything to improve their performances, taking on more work, taking on less work, looking at what the competition's doing, trying to emulate what the winners are doing, never really certain what the hell they should be doing on their own accord. And I think, and you may support this, I don't know, but I think that where they drop the ball most often is in the way they feed themselves. Yeah. That's why I wrote this book. <laughs> yeah, I had a feeling. <laughs> I had a feeling. And and um, there are so many things out there. There's so many fad diets. And, you know, I'm an old man. I've been doing this for a long time. And I've seen a lot of crap come and go. And what's interesting about it, when it comes, it usually goes, never really hangs on because it never seems to survive the test of time. Somebody tries this new fad diet for a little bit, has success. Everybody emulates that particular athlete, so they try to do what he does. And it's a function of the study of one. Works for me. It'll work for you. They go out and try it. They fail or they'll blame something else for why they failed. And it's just ugly, right? It is. So give our folks kind of a broad scope of how you put this all together. 
Yeah, so I mean, it, it's been driving me crazy for a while that um, you know, as, as part of my work, I hang out with elite endurance athletes, and I you know, I watch what they do, I interact with them, and um, and at the same time, I I also uh, devote a fair amount of time to helping recreational endurance athletes, you know, achieve their goals. Everyone from you know, rank beginners to sub elites. Um, and, you know, I've just noticed for a long time that the recreational athletes aren't doing what the elite athletes are doing <laughs> in, in training or diet. And I think that's kind of crazy. I mean, obviously, you know, Joe and Jane marathon runner can't do everything, you know, an elite Kenyan marathoner does, but still, I mean, they should be looking to, they should at least know what, what the best practices of the best athletes are. So it's been a it's been a big part of my mission for a while. That's why I wrote the eighty twenty running book, um, and then this is sort of the diet version of that, um, where you know so so many of these fad diets are supported by reductionist science, um, and you know it's gotten to the point where you, you can make a scientific seeming argument in defense of any old crazy diet, and and so what I wanted to do with this book was just kind of shift the whole terms of the debate, and essentially say this is overstating it a bit but science schmience <laughs> let's just look at real world evidence like let's let's look at what what's actually working for the most successful athletes um and of course if they were all doing different things then there wouldn't be much guidance to be gleaned from that exercise but in fact there are common patterns that uh w we see in diets of elite endurance athletes in all disciplines not not just running and but, you know, triathlon, rowing, cross-country skiing, you name it, and all over the world. Uh, and I think that these things exist as, as universals for a reason, because they, because they work better than the alternatives. So uh, that's really the premise of the book. And I wanted to, I'm not a scientist, but I wanted to sort of do this as scientifically as I was capable of doing. So, I, you know, I really did my research. I, I traveled all over the world. Uh, you know, to interact with elite endurance athletes, but I also created kind of like a standardized survey and sent that out to, because I couldn't, couldn't travel everywhere, um, but I wanted to reach as many different types of athletes in as many countries as possible. And uh, so gathered a lot of data and kind of synthesized it uh, in this book. Okay. So I'm going to cut to the chase and let's just kind of visit the, the what to do versus what not to do. And you know and I know that carbohydrates gotten a bad rap over the years. Uh, people shy away from breads when they, when they go to dinner. Uh, they, they take the, the bun off their hamburger, and, and they just got caught up in the idea that by eating carbohydrate, that's going to make them fat. And in simple strokes, you know, we know this not to be true. What makes people fat is too much food and not enough activity. It's got nothing to do with carbohydrate because carbohydrate is a necessity. It's 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 fuel, and in the absence of fuel, there's absence of performance. Would would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, this is a Pandora's box, and there, there's there's a lot to be said on the topic. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, usually when people go on a low low carb diet and they lose weight, they'll they'll say, see, carbs do make you fat, but they're, what they're really doing is uh, throwing out the baby with the bathwater. What, what the reason they lost weight is because they cut out low-quality carbohydrate food sources, not because they, they cut out carbs in, in general. You, you, can, you, can, uh, you can modify your diet in a way that does not reduce your carb intake, but does reduce your intake of sugars and refined grains, and you will also lose weight. And, and by, by separating uh, you know, high quality carbs from low quality carbs, you can see that it's not really carbs in general that are to blame. Well, not only that, but uh, the fact of the matter is, is that carbohydrate contains a lot of water. And as you start to restrict right. carbohydrate, you're, you're going to drop water weight. But it's not that you're improving the value of your, your body composition because you're not, right. you're not improving your lean weight and you're not really subtracting the fat weight. You're just subtracting water from your weight. Yep that tends to come back pretty quickly yep and pretty easily so i was fascinated by some of the uh revelations in respect to some of these world-class athletes and the way they fed themselves and and the commonality aside from the fact that they seem to be eating 
high quality food and not detracting from pretty much anything, the volume of food that they consume and the percentage of carbohydrate is pretty high. Yeah. So yeah, there's sort of you know there, there are five you know core habits that that I identified in these athletes and and you've you've uh, just kind of isolated two of them, uh, which is uh, I call it a carbohydrate-centered diet, um, and also they, these folks eat enough. And and uh, you know some of my survey questions sort of got to that. You know there's there's quality and then there's quantity of, of food intake. And uh, by and large, these athletes are much more fearful of not eating enough than they are of eating too much, which actually makes sense. If you, I mean, obviously, what you really want to do is eat exactly the right amount. Um, but people, especially, you know, recreational athletes who are afraid of eating too much and put, you know, calorie restrictions on themselves, those people actually don't often end up eating exactly the right amount. They tend to eat too little and then drive themselves nuts with eating too little and then kind of snap and binge <laughs> and so they end up sort of pinballing back and forth between eating, eating not enough and eating too much. Whereas elite athletes, yes, they're burning a ton of calories, so they, they need to, to take in a ton of calories. But in terms of how they actually go about eating the right amount, it's not through um, artificial calorie limits or, or any form of calorie counting. They'll do that sometimes during you know, short, short periods for a specific purpose. But by and large, they just do it through mindfulness. They just pay attention to their body's needs and um, they, don't, they don't eat because it looks good. They eat because they're physically hungry and they need the calories. And that seems to be a much more reliable way to thread that needle and eat neither too much uh, nor not enough. Let me share with you that lately, one of the things that I've been focusing on, I've been traveling, I don't know if you're aware of it, but I've been traveling around the country doing clinics. And in the course of these clinics that I do, I, I've been doing VO2 testing and I've also been doing resting metabolic assessments. And I've been doing the resting metabolic assessments. I added that to the, the offering because I felt that it's important that the athletes that I work with get a better handle on the fact that probably not feeding properly. Yep. And what I find and is usually really surprising to most of the people that I test is how few calories they're getting relative to what is needed. Yep. And I mean, aside from everything else, I mean, whether we're going to break it down, uh, what the macronutrients are going to be uh, and when they're going to consume it, I'll look at a guy and his resting metabolism is about 3,500 calories. And then we do a VO2 on them, and we look at the, an average aerobic workout for an hour. The cost is around 1,000 calories. So not taking into account a lot of other things, just off the cuff, resting metabolism plus one-hour exercise, the demand is around 4,000 calories. And they look at me like I'm absolutely crazy. Mm -hmm. And then we look at uh, what they are eating, and a lot of people don't even know. I'm not suggesting that people should get into this calorie counting mentality daily, but at least getting to a place where you understand what you're lacking or what is what is needed and then go from there. Uh, yep. Because I see um, that a lot of these guys, you know, uh, we, after the test we'll have this conversation, when was the last meal you consumed and what does your workouts look like? So, Typically, I'll hear somebody say, my, my last meal of the evening would be like 7 o'clock. I get up at 6, I do my workout, and then I'll come home and then I might have something to eat. And so they've effectively fasted for better than 12 hours and then accelerated the fast by doing the work without any food. And they'll, they come back with comments like, oh, you know, I really can't exercise when I've eaten. I, it just... I feel sluggish if I if I eat, and so I guess I, I wanted to share with you and ask you. When you talk about eating for satiety, how do you say it? Satiety. Satiety. <laughs> you know, I'm not I've not been in this country very long, so. <laughs> <laughs> my my question is is if you're just eating to ensure that you're getting adequate food, you're you're going to satisfy your hunger. 
Don't you find that we kind of train ourselves in that regard? When I start pushing people into eating more food, they just feel like, oh, my God, I cannot take all this food. How can I pop? And then after they kind of adopted and they've taken it on for a few weeks, if they miss a meal uh, off of their plan, they're, they're like dying. You know, I mean, you train your, your right. hunger, don't you? Yeah. Yep. And it goes in, in both directions. You know, obviously, if you're t- talking about the, the, the population at large versus just endurance athletes, what we're trained to do is overeat for the most part. Um, and that's, that's what, that's what has given rise to this idea that you cannot trust your appetite to properly regulate the amount of food you consume. But that's just a ridiculous notion. I mean, millions of years of evolution went into honing that, that mechanism. Like, you know, do animals in the wild have no idea how much they should eat, you know, based on hunger? They're not count, counting calories. How about human infants? Um, you know, you can trust your appetite. It's just, you know, in the environment we live in, we've been just trained to, you know, eat, eat whenever. Uh, so we've, we've lost that sensitivity, but there's pretty good research. And, and I, uh, adduced it in, in my book to show that you can get back in touch with that. Um, but it, it is, as you suggest, a matter of, of retraining the process, but any, anyone can do it. So the, the other elephant in the room, I really want to shed some light on this because it's been it's been difficult for me. I get a lot of these guys that are chasing down this this new fad of this uh, fat adapted diets, endurance athletes that are believing that or have been basically told that they can function better, improve better, go longer, not requiring carbohydrate if they train themselves to get into this fat adapted diet. Can you shed some light on some of the research you did in that regard? Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, you know, <laughs> there's really no evidence, you know, to support that, that philosophy. Um, I mean, there is evidence that if you um, do endurance training and maintain a high fat diet, you can vastly increase your muscles capacity to burn fat but people who are on this high fat diet bandwagon treat that as if that's the goal. Like last I checked, no one was handed a trophy after a race for burning the most fat between the start and finish line. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, like the, the goal is to perform better and there's just no evidence that you perform better on one of these diets. Um, And in fact, there's, you know, the preponderance of evidence is that, you know, anything up to about, you know, uh, 90 minutes, two hours, you're going to perform worse uh, because, you know, car- burning carbs is important too. You know, wh- what you really want to be able to do is just burn more energy than anyone else in-, in-, in the race, regardless of where it comes from. So I call it means attachment, where people get attached to achieving a certain end by a particular means, and nobody should care what works and what doesn't. The, you know, the goal, like I said, is performance. So so who cares? Like, you know, you know, just labeling things good and bad, carbs good or carbs bad, fat good. It just gets you, uh, you, you, you become, uh, you know, penny wise and pound poor through that. You just lose perspective as, you know, with regard to what you're actually trying to achieve. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if the goal is performance and uh, you do races, if, if you do any races that last less than two hours, you absolutely want to have a, a carbohydrate-centered diet. Uh, selective carbohydrate restriction around you know, particular workouts can be advantageous. When you get to the ultra-distance stuff, and obviously the, the, the high-fat thing is really caught on among ultra-runners, um, there, at least it can be a wash, sort of a neutral. You're doing no better or no worse. Um, but there are certain other negatives, um, not the least of which is that a 70% fat diet is just, it, I mean, try eating that way if you haven't done it. <laughs> there, there's like, you have to reduce your diet to about six things. You know, you know, six things that you eat over and over and over. You have to eliminate, you know, fruit and and you know, you know even things like whole grains, even things like dairy, or they they don't have the right ratio. So you just end up eating like a weirdo. Um, 
you know what I mean? Like you can't have, you can't just go out to a restaurant with friends and just chill and enjoy some, some haute cuisine. Um, so just like, you know, there's a long list of problems, but you know, just even if you uh, forget the other ones and, and focus on performance, it's just, it's not the way to go. Well, the argument that I, I pose when I get into these conversations is if you look again, it's evidence-based. If you look at, the athletes that historically are challenged for great distances at, at high intensity, I guess the best model for that is looking at the Tour de France. And I know, I have personal friends that are exercise scientists that work with these athletes during the tour and feed them, and they don't eat high-fat diets. Mind you, they eat fat, but they don't rely on a high-fat diet. There's very, very few people, if any, that actually are successful in that sport that adopted a diet like that. They're commonly very, very high in their carbohydrate, and they just eat a buttload of food, right? Yep. So, yeah. And then the other end of it is, given that I, I do testing, and I see it every day, as the intensity goes up, the percentage of carbohydrate improves, and the utilization of fat drops off, and if you plan on, like you suggested, if you plan on winning an event, you're going to have to eat some carbs. You're going to have to bust some carbs up in your diet. Otherwise, you're just going to run out of the fuel that's necessary to provide you the intensity needed to win these races, right? Yeah, and not even just to, to win them because, you know, it, you know, intensity is relative. So, you know, if you are a runner and you, and you, you know, you occasionally run – half marathon, even if you're mainly an ultra runner, like if you want to compete at these distances that, that have higher intensities, you know, w w the same, the same principles that apply to the people trying to win these races apply to you as well. If you are on a low carb diet, you're going to lose a little bit of your VO2 max. Uh, you may well lose a bit of your um, capacity to absorb higher training loads. Um, and you're just going to take a, a step or two back, whether you know, your goal is just to, to PR somewhere in the middle of the field or, or to win. And it seems that just from where I sit and my experiences, that those that lend themselves towards a vegan diet run into the same kind of problems. They just don't seem to have the snap. They don't seem to recover as well as uh, athletes that, that have a fuller plate. Have you any thoughts on that? Yeah, so this gets back to uh, to habit number one, which is eat everything. And you know what I found with elite endurance athletes is that they don't eliminate food groups or food types or you know demon nutrients <laughs> as as so many people on you know on fad diets do. These elite endurance athletes have just an inclusive, you know, balanced, varied diet uh, where nothing is off limits, including you know some low low quality treats. You know, I think, you know, just having the occasional uh, brownie or whatever, just it makes uh, it makes an overall high quality diet more sustainable. Um, and this makes sense, right? Because, I mean, human beings are nature's ultimate omnivores. You know, we there are all these revisionist histories of of, you know, human diet, um, you know, that are created to support various fad diets. But the fact of the matter is we are designed to eat everything. <laughs> um, and, and so it's not surprising that the diet that, and when we're also natural endurance athletes, uh, as a species, so it's just not at all surprising that the diet that seems to work best to support endurance performance is one that includes every food group. Um, even the ones that are, you know, commonly vilified by, by popular diets. This is not to say that you can't, you know, perform at a high level, uh, you know, as, a paleo person or a vegan, but you're just making it hard for yourself. There's, there's nothing to be gained and there's a lot of risk taken on. So yeah, I know very successful vegan endurance athletes, successful, you know, endurance athletes who don't eat grains or, or whatever, but I know a lot more who crash and burn when, when they go right. on one of these diets. That was exactly what I was going to say. And I concur. I mean, I know guys that fight what, what I would feel would be reasonable get by with diets that 
I, I what's the word I want to use? They're they're left wanting. I, I just don't. It's just harder, you know, to ensure that you're getting good complete protein. You're getting all the essential aminos in the food groups that you're drawing from. It's a sticky wicket. You got to be pretty sharp, and you got to really be on top of it. And I think it's a lot harder to pull it off than it is if if you were just to get out there and enjoy the fruits of of uh, what's available. So let's let's kind of walk through what you uh, exhibit here is the five core habits of world greatest athletes. Let's can you I, we already kind of touched on it a little bit, but just for the audience, can you walk through it uh, at least graze through it for us? Yeah, sure. Uh, so habit number one is eat everything, which we, we just talked about. And that means, you know, just have a, uh, maintain a diet that includes all of the, the major food types, um, including, you know, low quality treats, you know, as, as um, uh, something that makes up, you know, has a, a marginal but consistent place in your diet. Um, number two is eat quality. Um, and, you know, so of, of the, you know, the, the full uh, catalog of different uh, food types, some are high quality, others are low quality. The high quality food types are fruits, vegetables, whole grains, dairy, unprocessed meat and fish, and well, kind of a category I call nut seeds and healthy oils. So your diet should be made up mostly of those. And again, when I look at endurance athletes, elite endurance athletes around the world, that's what they're eating most of. Uh, the, four, the four low quality food types in my classification system are refined grains, sweets, processed meats, and fried foods. And those can be in the diet, but they should have, again, sort of a, a marginal place in it. So that's what it means to maintain a, a high quality diet. Everything is included, but it's, you know, it's really weighted towards the high quality uh, food types. Then habit number three is eat carbohydrate centered. Um, and that really j- just means that, you know, what I observed is that um, unless, you know, an athlete's doing some kind of carbohydrate restricted individual workout, they, they are including high quality, high carbohydrate foods in every meal and in most snacks. So that's what it means to maintain a, a carbohydrate centered diet. Habit number four is eat enough. Um, and and that, that's the idea that the quantity of food that you consume is determined by your, your real energy needs, um, which are communicated to you through your own body, you know, through, you know, built-in, um, you know, appetite regulatory mechanisms. And, you know, what I observed among elite endurance athletes, just in general, is that they are super tuned into their body's needs, uh, you know, with diet and with training. And that and that applies to the specific issue of um, appetite and, and regulating how much food food they eat. Um, so you know they, they neither overeat or, nor nor do they undereat. Um, you know based on uh, you know just listening to their bodies and and, and supplying them with 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 what their bodies ask for. And then habit number five. So those are sort of you know, the first four are, are sort of universals. Habit number five is eat individually. Um, and, and this makes sense, right? Because, you know, we're all human, but we're also all, you know, uh, unique. And what, what I definitely observed uh, in my research is that, um, you know, it's, again, part of being tuned into individual needs is it, or, you know, being tuned into one's body is that your body is not the same as that of the athlete next to you. So, you know, for example, when I, I went to Spain and uh, spent a few days with um, a professional cycling team, it's actually a Dutch team, but they were in Spain for a training camp. And I, w- I would sit at the table with the, the whole team and I would look at their plates and no two plates were the same. And I would sort of quiz each an individual athlete as, you know, why are you eating this? Why aren't you eating that? And there was always a reason. It was based on, you know, this doesn't agree with me or I'm allergic to that or I just noticed that, you know, if I eat that, I, I gain weight or I don't perform as well. So, so that's a part of it as, as well. There's um, uh, some responsibility on you um, as an individual athlete to, to pay attention uh, to connect cause and effect and, and to, um, you know, over time, just move toward an optimum in your diet that may be a little bit different from that of, of what, any, you know, what anyone else is doing. Did we get the list? Is that all? That's, yeah, that's five. Okay, cool. So now I've got to ask you a question that uh, I don't know whether you're going to want to answer it or not, but it's on my mind, so I've got to ask you. 
I and I know you have over the years followed a lot of the works of Tim Noakes. And you know that he's come out pretty hard on carbohydrates over the last few years. Have you had conversation with him about any of those theories and philosophies that he's espousing? Uh, no, I, I can tell you that I'm blocked from his Twitter feed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it hurt me. It uh, honestly, I got to tell you, and and you, you know, again, what what's cool about getting old is you have license to say almost anything you want to, and people give you a pass, which is kind of where I'm going these days. But um, I have always loved his work. I mean, the lore of running in my my mind was just a great piece and and I think I started with uh, the second edition and right on up through the final edition that he, he put out and uh, and we have conversed him and I uh, on training philosophies in the past and I was just I had a lot of respect I still have a lot of respect for him and I was like a little taken back by his position on this whole you know hate the carbs thing and I want to believe that in part it's due to the fact that he personally is diabetic and has some issues with carbohydrates himself. And, and again, you, you don't need to touch on this if you don't want to, but I was just curious what your thought was. Yeah, so I'm, I'm in the same boat. You know, I've, uh, you know, Tim, he wrote the foreword to my Brain Training for Runners book. Um, and that, that was, I mean, he, he really did me a solid with that. Um, and, you know, so we, we interacted for a long time, he was just, he was kind of a quasi mentor. Um, I would, I would go to him with things and, and he was generous with, with his time. And, you know, I really respected his intellect. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, that, that low carb thing just came out of nowhere. Um, and you know, it wasn't just the substance, but the style of it that was, this was, wasn't, is disappointing to me that we're, um, and I know this is true. I've talked to other people, you know, people who studied under him at the University of Cape Town who just are just scratching their heads wondering, you know, what happened? This isn't uh, I mean, he was always a maverick and he was always a bit of a loose cannon. Um, but but, you know, just what he's doing with the low carb diet thing is just kind of fundamentally non-rational. Um, and, you know, it's just it's just one of those things. I I, I wish him no ill, but I mean, I, I view myself as in competition with him in terms of actually supplying athletes with advice that's going to help them, not hurt them. So, right. you know, I'm in that sense, I'm kind of at loggerheads with him now. Well, that was kind of my feeling, to be very honest with you. I, I'm looking at this, and I know the influence he has. And for him to take the position he has, I think it's been a disservice. I, I just think that he's leading people down an ugly road. Yeah, for whatever it's worth. And I mean, it's probably something we could talk about over a beer, but uh, um, I don't know. I just wanted to get your, your bite on it because uh, it, it did. It kind of, it chilled me to the bone when I saw how, I mean, I've listened to some podcasts he's done and, you know, he's, he's laying it down and a lot of people are influenced by what he has to say. And he's had great influence over me over the years. So I, uh, like you, I, I felt like I relied a lot on his words. And now I'm like, God, dude, he's not invited to any more parties. <laughs> and, and if he is, if he does come over to a party, you better be careful what you serve. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nothing but meat. We're just gonna... <laughs> All right, so um, let's talk about a couple of the other books that you did, because for those that, I mean, I'm sure that everybody on the planet that's endurance sport knows who you are at this point in time. But you've got some other great stuff. And we had a conversation just the other day. Who was I talking to? Somebody asked me about, um, oh, yeah, we were talking about the controversy of Iron War. And, yeah, I was having lunch with a fella, and uh, he brought it up. And I said, you know what, That's I think that's probably one of Matt's best books. One of my favorites, anyway. And uh, I don't know, I mean, obviously because... I have history with, with the, the sport. But anyway, for whatever it's worth, I think that um, those listening, if you get a chance, you might want to pull up Iron War. It's, that's right, right? It's Iron War, right? Yep. Which was the story about 
Mark Allen and Dave Scott in their duel at Ironman, which was an amazing, amazing competition. And the backstory is pretty fascinating, and I thought Matt did an amazing job with that. So you heard it from me first, Matt. For those listening who aren't familiar with the controversy, controversy, uh, Dave and Mark sued me when, when the book <laughs> came out. Uh, it was eventually it, it was settled, but um, yeah, that was super stressful, you know, because those guys. I mean, it, it's a weird experience. Like those guys were my heroes growing up, um, and yeah, that's part of why I wrote the book is that I, I thought these that their story was amazing. Um, it's kind of the endurance version of, you know, Martina Navratilova and Chris Everett Lloyd, but, but even better, you know, even richer. Um, and so I, I wanted, I wanted, you know, I, I was motivated to write the book because I wanted other people to sort of appreciate that story the way I did and to have it kind of blow up in my face the, the way it did was, um, it was, it was tough. It was really stressful. Um, but you know, <clears throat> people, uh, People who have read the book, you know, generally they, they do like it quite a lot. Um, so that's been that's been gratifying. Um, and I hope a lot of that gets back to Dave and Mark where they I don't know. I think they sort of feared that somehow what I wrote was going to sully their reputations. But I, I think it has really done the opposite. And I'm hopeful that that they're they're seeing that, you know, with the passage of time. Well, that was pretty much the case. I, I read that open letter that they put out. Yeah, they were a little hurt, to put it lightly. But the other thing that I wanted to ask you about, and a couple things I want to ask you about, and I don't mean to get too far off point here, but uh, first of all, before we do, I want to make sure everybody understands the endurance. Is, is it out yet, the endurance diet? It is not officially out. You, you can pre-order it, and please do, but uh, the official publication date is December the 27th. Okay. You will make sure I get a copy of that. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Consider it done. Um, I wanted to ask you a couple questions, two things that came up. Uh, first of all, you have another book called the 8020. Uh, it's a training philosophy. And I know that you just ran a marathon and you before we got on, you told me you weren't pleased with the finish time. But I also saw a thread on Facebook that suggested you signed up for seven more marathons. Yeah. <laughs> the, you know what the last time you and I were like in front of each other over a glass of wine, you were complaining that your body just didn't take it anymore. And this has been some years ago. Have you been juicing? What's going on? Yeah, excuse me. I've always been injury prone. Um, and, you know, but giving up wasn't an option for me. <laughs> you know, I was just always, you know, I always wanted to, uh, to race and to race to the best of my ability. So over the years, I just learned ways to adapt to, to you know, to get injured less often without sacrificing my competitive ambitions. So I just, you know, over time adopted a formula that's a little weird. Um, you found, you said it's kind of a goofy formula. What, what is that goofy formula? What precisely are you doing that's working for you? Yeah. So I just do a, a ton of cross training. Um, and, you know, I've, I have history as a triathlete as well, but for the, for the last seven years I've been focused on running, but I only run, three to four times per week. Um, and of course you can't really, you know, you can't win races on three to four runs per week. So I supplement that with a ton of low and non-impact cardio cross training. And it, I mix it up. I, I have these patented steep uphill treadmill walks that I do. Um, I have an elliptigo outdoor elliptical bike. I have a regular bike that I ride. So I just do a ton of that stuff. Um, you know, and, and I, w I wouldn't be doing this if I if I still could run twice a day, but I just can't. Uh, and I also, you know, do a fair amount of strength training. Um, so it's a high volume, it's a high volume, low running volume approach to training. And I'm also very, very judicious with high intensity training. You know, it's got to be in the mix if you want to tow starting lines, you know, fit and ready to rip. But I have to be very, very careful, you know, and just kind of sprinkle it in as, uh, you know, a seasoning, <laughs> the high intensity stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, that's interesting. I knew you were using the elliptico and I know that you were supplementing your running with that at one point in time. Uh, I told you I got on the thing and I just, we never could get along me in that thing. Uh, I tried it. Yeah. It didn't work. 
Yeah. The just the movement was weird for me. I couldn't couldn't wrap my head around it. So getting on the bike old school is kind of what I've done. Yep. So you've been doing a lot of uh I'm assuming real steep uphill walking like like a Nordic track or something like that. Yeah, I've I've got my own treadmill and I just I crank it up all the way 15%. Um you know, I've just uh I you know, I've got um you know, a combination of incline and speed that puts my heart rate about where it would be during an easy run. Um, so, you know, it's a little dull, but I, I'm a voracious reader. So I just, you know, set it up, fire up my Kindle and uh, do do the work. And and there's no question, you know, just based on, you know, I'm 45, so I'm I'm slowing down to, due to age. But just based on how I'm performing in, in races uh, with this way of training, I really can't imagine I would – I don't think I'm giving anything up, honestly. I don't think I would be doing any better if I still was able to, you know, run twice a day. How much actual volume running are you getting in a week? You know, it it it, it, it can get pretty high because I make every every run count, and that that's another part of, um, you know, my formulas that I I now do um, things like you know back to back twenty mile runs. I do over distance runs so i'll I'll do a you know a 50k training run in training for a a marathon um so sometimes you know with with the four runs i do in a week it can add up to 60 miles um yeah oh well you're not doing anything crazy then i mean that's still a lot of volume i mean it's not crazy volume but it's it's definitely it's suitable volume uh i could see where easily 60 miles a week is adequate to turn out the type of times you're hoping for. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, but that, that would be a, that would be a high. I mean, sometimes it's just, it's closer to, you know, 40, 45 miles of of running, but there's clearly a a crossover benefit that I'm taking some of the fitness I gain from the other activities and injecting it in, into the, the, the running for sure. Oh, well, that's interesting. I, with the OCR community that I've been working with these days, what's gotten to be very popular is these Nordic track treadmills that have like 40, 60% grade. Yep. And I'm, I'm not sure that I, I dig that. I, I, I think that's a little steep. Yeah. And I think it kind of detracts from where you're putting the load. You know, yep. any thoughts yep. on that? Yeah, I, I, I think you're, you're probably right. Um, you know, at a certain point, your the joint angles are so far away from what they are when you're actually running that you're just you know cross training. The idea is to have it be as similar to running as possible, except that it's just not running without the impact part. That's why I mean the ultimate cross training for running is anti-gravity treadmill running because that actually is still running right. uh yeah you, you can just do it pain-free with with most injuries or you know just do it with less stress on the body um so, so yeah you want things that's why you know there's kind of a, a spectrum like swimming and rowing aren't going to do much for you at all yeah you're going to get your heart rate up but those are upper body dominant activities so um yeah along that spectrum i, I would think that a moderate gradient on a treadmill is just going to be neuromuscularly more like running than if you're, you know, cranking it up to 40%. And that's almost like climbing, you know, scrabbling up a cliff face. Yeah. I, I, again, I, I've been kind of down on that idea and a a lot of guys have run out to get one of those treadmills and I shouldn't talk bad about them. Maybe one day there'll be a sponsor, (laughs) but um, so I know how you roll for the most part. And given that this book is already kind of out of the hopper, there, there's got to be about two in queue right now. What else are you writing about? Yeah, so I've got one that I ghost wrote for James Lawrence, The Iron Cowboy, yeah. uh, coming out in March. I'm very excited about that one. It's just He's an amazing guy with an, an incredible story. Um, and then I'm actually I'm teeing up uh, one on pacing, uh, ah. the, art, the art and science of pacing. Um, you know, you know, two reasons I'm doing that. One is there's a ton of really interesting research going on in this area now. It's just hot. Um, and so the science is advancing quickly. 
And, and the second thing is that people are really bad at pacing. <laughs> right. You yeah, know, right. you know, I just, you know, my focus as a coach has always been, you know, I train you, I get you in shape, I lead you up to the start line and then you're on your own. And what I've found over and over is that, you know, people, I'll, I'll sort of do that job. You know, people are, are fit and ready to perform when they get to the start line, but then they blow it with, with poor pacing. So I've just seen, you know, people really need help with this. Right. And I think it really does actually merit, you know, it's a, it's a narrow topic, but it, an, an important one. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a book unto itself, no question. It is, yeah. Uh, yeah. And that was actually a nice segue into the question I had for you. But before I go there, I want you to know that I've been toying with the idea, and I, every time I talk to you, I talk about writing another book, and you've already written 75 in the time that I've <laughs> But uh, I actually am looking at writing a book on lactate tolerance training. Uh-huh. Uh, and I call it training the dark side because nice. there's so much that's been written about training aerobically. Yep. But the fact of the matter is um, understanding how to effectively develop your, your lactate tolerance and using that, that energy system to, to your own end falls very nicely into pacing strategy. Yep. And, I, I'm a big, big fan of time trialing, uh-huh. heart rate-specific time trialing, just to start looking at cause and effect. I mean, you look, and I know you're not like hot on just heart rate, but I look at metrics. I look at everything. Go out and run 20 miles, stay aerobic the entire 20 miles. Go out and run 20 miles, and then try to put the hammer down somewhere along the way and see what ends up happening. Mm-hmm. And start making decisions about what your pacing strategy is going to look like relative to the outcome of your time trials. So that when you do show up race day, you don't look like a fool because you didn't know where to put the hammer down, what right. was going to happen if you did, and so on and so forth. So for whatever it's worth, I think that, that's going to be a good read. I'm going to be excited to see that. Yeah, it's going to be a fun one to work on. I think it'll it'll help a lot of athletes. I was going to ask you about this whole Nike project, the Breaking the Two Hours. I'm sure you had some thoughts about that. Yeah. Runner's World Magazine apparently did an article about this project and the three candidates they have set up to try to break this two-hour mark and trying to get it done in in the very near future. Any thoughts on whether that's your, your feeling is there's potential or who do you like is potentially the favorite? Yeah, I, I don't see it happening anytime soon. I mean, you know, we're, we're three minutes away, which is an eternity. You know, if you just rewind, look at how far back you have to go for – the last three minutes of improvement in, uh, you know, in, in marathon world record time. So, you know, from, from 205, you know, high 205s to high 202s. Um, and of course we're that much closer to whatever, you know, our, our limit is. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be a dismal failure. <laughs> <laughs> So if you had a guess, what do you think the defining factor is going to be that's going to cause us to broach that two hours? I mean, looking into variables like weight, uh, strength of weight, force production, aerobic potential, feeding strategy, where, where do you think there's more room to grow? I think it has to be a little bit of everything. Um, so I don't think it's going to be like, you know, one one breakthrough nets us three minutes um so if i were involved in this i i would be suggesting well you know one is uh the the surface they run on they're definitely you know better surfaces uh than asphalt uh that would would make a, a difference a small one um i would have uh the runners be exposed to high energy up-tempo music while while they uh you know attempted uh a sub to our marathon because we know that is performance enhancing. So, uh, but you know, is, is that alone going to make the difference? No. So I think you just have to look at everything that could be exploited that, that isn't currently being exploited in the marathons where the, where the world records are actually being set. Um, and you know, you know, throw them all at it. Well, the other consideration too, is that trying to manufacture that time, kind of takes some of the fun out of it. You know what I mean? It's like they're talking about drafting strategies and ways that they can, you know, drop 10 seconds per mile if they draft properly. I mean, isn't there somewhere along the way where the Cowboys just got to get up on his pony and get it done? I mean, um, otherwise it just doesn't mean that much. I mean, 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little torn on that. I actually just got, uh, I subscribed to this uh, newsletter that Mario Fraley does uh, called The Morning Shakeout. It's really good. And, and he's, he's an ultra purist, so he hates this idea. <laughs> and, you know, he's very persuasive in his rants on it. But there, there is a part of me that, that looks at it a different way. I mean, if this became, if the whole sport went in this direction, that would be tragic. But, but as just sort of an addition to it, you know, just sort of a, a temporary novelty thing, you know, I, I don't see the harm so much. And it does appeal to sort of another side of me, um, not, not, you know, not the usual fan of competitive running, but, you know, it's just sort of an, an inter- interesting intellectual puzzle. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I kind of feel two ways about it. Yeah, so like a, a windy day at your back with a little bit of a downhill grade, Maybe a vehicle in front of you with a big cowl behind it, so that you can kind of suck up behind it. Yeah, just kind of takes some of the fun out of it, I think. You know, yeah. Not suggesting that's what they're going to do, but I mean, they tried everything else. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming back on. I wish you the very best in this holiday season, and uh, be looking forward to seeing the new books as they come out. Tell people how to find your stuff. Yeah. So. Uh... Start at mattfitzgerald.org, my website. Don't go to .com. That's some other clown. You know, I bought that website. You bastard. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> it had your fingerprints all over Should have known. All right, well, best of luck to you, man, and thanks, thanks a lot. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reach out to you again when we get this other book out of the hopper. Fantastic. All right, buddy, take care. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.